Pierre-Emile Longelier died on the 23rd of March, 1857. On the 30th of July of that year, his lover, the Glasgow socialite Madeleine Smith, stood on trial at Edinburgh Crown Court, accused of his murder. Emile's landlady, Anne Jenkins, was one of the first witnesses to take the stand. I knew the late Monsieur Longelier. He lodged in our house. He came about the end of July and remained with me till his death. His usual habits were regular. He was sometimes out at night, not very often, but has been late. His general health was good till about January. I recollect his having an illness about the middle of February. He had one about the 22nd and one eight or 10 days before. Those illnesses in February are significant because they relate to the charge that Madeleine Smith tried to poison Longelier on two occasions before he died the following month. Anne Jenkins went on to describe what happened in the hours leading up to Emile's death. He went out that night about nine o'clock and before going out he said, if you please give me the passkey. I'm not sure but I may be late. I saw him next about half past two on the Monday morning. He did not use the passkey. The bell rang with great violence. I rose and called, who's there? He said, it is I, Mrs Jenkins. Open the door, if you please. I did so. He was standing with his arms closed across his stomach. He said, I am very bad. I'm going to have another vomiting of that bile. Eventually, she called for the doctor, James Stephen. I had more blankets put upon the bed and bottles of hot water around his body. I gave him a little morphia to quiet the painful retching and inclination to vomit as he seemed to have already vomited all he could. He had a weak pulse. I felt the action of the heart. It was not particularly weak. That imported that the circulation was weaker at the extremities. His feet were not cold, hot bottles were put to them, and also near his body for his hands. He was not urgently complaining of thirst. He seemed afraid to drink large quantities in case of bringing back the vomiting. I ordered a mustard poultice to the stomach. I stayed, I suppose, about half an hour. It was about seven when I went there and I got home at 20 minutes to eight. I applied the poultice myself. By the time the doctor returned, Langelier was dead. I called again at a quarter past 11. His landlady met me in the lobby and told me they'd been quite as bad as in the morning, but he had just fallen quiet. I went into the bedroom and found him dead. He was lying on his right side with his back towards the light his knees a little drawn up, one arm outside the bedclothes and another in. Later that day, Langelier's employers, W.B. Huggins & Co, requested a post-mortem, which was duly carried out at the house where he died on the 24th of March, 1857, by Dr Stephen and Langelier's regular doctor, Hugh Thompson. The incision made on opening the belly and chest revealed a considerable deposit of subcutaneous fat. That first post-mortem took place in Anne Jenkins's house in Franklin Place, and it seems curious now to think of the doctors doing an autopsy in a domestic setting just off Glasgow's bustling and busy Great Western Road. In this fourth episode of Inside Forensic Science, The Case of Madeline Smith, a podcast from the Levy Hume Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee, we're looking in detail at the post-mortem and the role of the pathologist in an investigation of this nature. Will the post-mortem provide the necessary evidence to convict Madeline Smith 
of Langelier's murder. Yet true it is, and of verity that you, the said Madeline Smith, or Madeline Hamilton Smith, are guilty of the said crimes, or of one or other of them, actor or art and part. My name's Dr Richard Shepherd. Uh, I'm a consultant forensic pathologist and I've worked in the field of forensic pathology looking at all sorts of natural and unnatural deaths, murders, accidents and suicides for 40 years. As the pathologist, the key questions are, is there any evidence of natural disease present in the body? Um, the symptoms often can cross over with poisoning and other acts that have taken place. So our job initially is to say, are there any marks of violence? Is there any evidence of natural disease present in the body? Our second role is as the collector of evidence, which we then pass to other specialists. In this case, obviously, the toxicologists are crucial. They were then, they are now, in understanding exactly what happened to this man. The lungs, the liver and the spleen appeared quite healthy. The gallbladder was moderately full of bile and contained no calculi. The stomach and intestines externally presented nothing abnormal. The first autopsy was performed on the 24th of March, uh, which is two days after he died. And that's not unusual because there was some discussion, it seems, between the procurator fiscal, the police and doctors as to why this man had died. Was it natural causes or was it something suspicious? And in the end, Dr. Stephen and Dr. Thompson were asked to perform uh, a post-mortem examination, which they did. And as typical in Scotland, two doctors have to be present at the examination. In, in England and Wales, it only has to be one, but in Scotland, it has to be two. So they were both present and they examined the body lying on a stretcher as is quite normal. The stomach being tied at both extremities was removed from the body. Its contents consisting of about half a pint of dark fluid resembling coffee were poured into a clean bottle and the organ itself was laid open along its greater curvature. The mucous membrane, except for a slight extent at the lesser curvature, was then seen to be deeply injected with blood presenting an appearance of dark red mottling and its substance was marked to be soft, being easily torn by scratching with a fingernail. The other organs of the abdomen were not examined. The appearance of the They performed, by their accounts given in evidence, a thorough post-mortem examination, except, I would say uh, now, they didn't examine, at the first examination, his brain. And in the end, that's not turned out to be relevant but there's always the chance if you don't if you don't look you don't find and there's the chance he may have had a stroke uh, but in fact he hadn't and so they performed a thorough examination they were clearly aware at the time of the possibility of poisoning and so they retained various samples, most importantly, of course, the stomach and the stomach contents. Uh, and they put all of these samples, when they took them, into what they've described as clean vessels. Which, so there's an awareness of the risk of contamination going on then. And, and those samples, in particular, the stomach, were held by Dr. Thompson 
in his own uh, laboratory until he handed it over to Dr. Penny, who was the toxicologist, about four days later on. The appearance of the mucous membrane taken in connection with the history as related to us by witnesses, being such as, in our opinion, justified a suspicion of death having resulted from poison. We always get a history. I mean, all, all of medicine, living people or dead people, is based on the history. And, and it's often said that if you get a good history, you can make the diagnosis without actually examining the patient. I mean, the, the GP has said, you know, you should have diagnosed the patient as they walk across your surgery and sit down at the desk. I'm not sure that's true. But in pathology, we always get a history, sometimes good, sometimes full, sometimes not so full. But in this case, I would have expected that to have been told that he had uh, had several episodes of illness, what the types of illness were, the acute abdominal pain, the lassitude, the diarrhea, all of those things, I would have expected to have been told that from information gained by the police or the procurator fiscal. It would, I think, have been very useful, whether they knew this in detail at the time, to know about his relations between himself and Madeline Smith, you know, that there were background issues that were not standard, not normal. Uh, you know, of course, we always want to know in these cases, what are the background relationships happening? Because that can give us a clue. Uh, in the absence of uh, any worrying features, I would be approaching this as probably a, an infective death of a man in his, of his age group with diarrhea, maybe gastroenteritis. Uh, and I would be looking, as I say, to establish, was there any natural disease? He's described, actually, as having a, um, a considerable deposit of subcutaneous fat, uh, which I've written, <laughs> the note I've written, obese, question mark. So he was clearly not a, skinny, not a skinny man, you know, which is important. It moves us along the track. They looked at his heart, which they said was enlarged, but not so enlarged as to indicate disease. So, you know, we're looking at all these natural possibilities for death but we always will have in the back of our minds always the possibility of poisoning now nowadays it's not these metallic inorganic poisons it is drugs of one sort or another that we would be thinking of um, that having been said uh, in in my knowledge in my life I mean I can think of a th someone using thallium to poison people in the uh, factory in which he worked. That's quite a famous, famous case. So these things always have to lurk at the back of your mind. And if there is no good, good evidence of natural disease that you're confident could have caused death, then you move into the second phase, which is taking samples, taking samples for toxicology, taking samples nowadays to look at under a microscope. Before we turn to the impact of poison on the body, we're going to take a dogleg into the subject of cholera because there was a suggestion during the trial that Emile Langelier's symptoms may have been related to cholera rather than to poisoning. Mrs. Margaret Houston, or Clark. The late Monsieur Langelier lived with us for two years. He went from my house to Mrs. Jenkins, Franklin Place. I was very intimately acquainted with him when he lived in my house. I formed a very good impression of his character. He came to my house first in May 1854. 
he complained of the climate not agreeing with him. He did not say particularly how it disagreed with him. He said that he was occasionally troubled with diarrhoea or with symptoms approaching to that. I understood from himself that, on one occasion when he visited Helensborough, he had been attacked with something like cholera. He had gone to visit Monsieur de Mayon there. He told me he was not in the practice of taking a cholera medicine, but he told me that he took it at that time. I saw the cholera medicine in his room. It was labelled preparation used for cholera. Dr Douglas McLagan. I am a physician in Edinburgh. I've had some experience in cases of poisoning by arsenic and I have devoted a good deal of attention to chemistry. I have paid attention to the symptoms of arsenical poisoning. In cases of slight quantities of arsenic being taken, the symptoms very often resemble those of bilious or British cholera attacks. In very severe cases of arsenical poisoning, terminating fatally, there is a very remarkable resemblance to persons labouring under malignant or Asiatic cholera. Would you be able to see the effect of cholera on the body in an autopsy? Would you be able to, to know that he had had cholera? It's very, very difficult to make a positive diagnosis. They actually don't look at his bowel in any degree of detail until his body is exhumed and re-examined some four days later on. And then they, then they look in the bowel. And obviously, cholera is an infective disease of the bowel, and that's where you'd expect to find the signs pathologically. But he had exhibited evidence of profuse, watery, diarrhoea, which is one of the features uh, of cholera. Of course, it's also one of the features of arsenic poisoning, hence its difficulty. Now, going back to this era, I don't think the bacteriologists had yet identified and isolated the bacterium that caused cholera. It was, it was known to be a disease, but there was no definitive test, medical test, that could be performed uh, to support it. On the other hand, it is a highly infective disease. And whilst I, my, knowledge, my knowledge of these diseases is not so great, I think it would be unusual for one person to get cholera in a, in a group without passing it on. You'd expect it to be passed around a group of people and perhaps passed on to the people he lived with or his work colleagues or something of that sort. Doctors Hugh Thompson and James Stephen finished their post-mortem on L'Angelier and delivered their report. The stomach and its contents were sent to Dr Frederick Penny, Professor of Chemistry at the Andersonian Institute in Glasgow. Four days later, the Procurator Fiscal asked them to join Frederick Penny and a fourth doctor, Dr Corbett, and perform a second, more thorough post-mortem on L'Angelier's body at the Ramshorn Church in Glasgow. The duodenum, along with the upper part of the small intestine, was removed and placed in a clean jar. A portion of the large intestine, along with a portion of the rectum, after using the light precautions of placing ligatures on both ends of the bowel, was removed and placed in the same jar with the duodenum and portion of small intestine. Flocculent matter, which settled towards the bottom. Let's turn back to poison. To the surface. 
the mucous membrane of this part of the bowels was then examined. Its colour was decidedly redder than natural and this redness was more marked over several patches, portions of which, when carefully examined, were found to be eroded. Several small, whitish and somewhat gritty particles were removed from its surface and being placed on a clean piece of glass were delivered to Dr Penny. A few small ulcers, about a sixteenth of an inch in diameter and having elevated edges were observed on it at the upper part of the duodenum. On account of the failing light... In order to, to determine the type and quantity of any poison in the body, samples taken by the pathologist need to go to the toxicologist to be examined, which is exactly what happened in this case. We're going to look at the issue of toxicology in much more detail in the next episode because it is pivotal to this case. But for the moment, let's stick with the role of the pathologist and the impact of poison on the body. In this case, the poison in question was, of course, arsenic. Poisonings are, can be very specific. So, I mean, the, the, the features of arsenic poisoning are going to be different from other heavy metal poisonings, uh, drug poisonings, you know, laudanum opiates in that day. So when we're looking particularly at arsenic, now arsenic, you have to remember, is the 12th most common element in the world. So it's a very, very common element that's around us all the time. In its normal state, it isn't in any way poisonous. Um, it becomes poisonous when it becomes a compound, when it's linked with other chemicals. Uh, you know, so when in a, as an element, arsenic on its own is completely safe. But link it with other uh, chemicals, whether they're oxygen or hydrogen or nitrogen or something like that, then it becomes poisonous at various levels. Um, and the features you'd expect to see with arsenic poisoning depend on whether it's an acute poisoning. Okay, so someone has taken a dose, it's quite a large dose, and that causes immediate symptoms, and those are abdominal pain, uh, vomiting, you get acute diarrhoea, you can become ill and just completely washed out, like, like a really bad dose of gastroenteritis or flu. And that's where the problem is. There is this crossover. You know, is it just something infected? Is it just a virus? Or is it something worse? The key thing seems to me that it has the effect, of course, if you've taken it orally, you can't take it any other way. Uh, it has an effect on the stomach. And it is a violent gastroenteritis. You know, this is, you are really laid out by this, not just a bit, a bit of D and V. This is a very violent uh, effect. Um, pathologically, when you examine someone who has died at that time, the only significant findings are a sort of reddening of the stomach lining and irritation, inflammation of the stomach lining, because that's where you'd expect to see it, because that's where the poison is. And that's just about all. The second type of arsenic poisoning is actually cause is chronic poisoning, often due to exposure in the workplace or something of that sort. And that leads to a lower level of gastritis, a sort of a general lassitude, a feeling of unwell. It can lead to uh, changes in the skin. The skin is sometimes described as having a sort of slightly dark hue with whiter areas, sometimes called raindrop splashes on the skin so but that's chronic poisoning and that's not really what we're dealing with here although 
there may have been several episodes, there were several episodes of acute poisoning rather than the typical chronic poisoning. So a long answer to say not much, actually. <laughs> the bottom line is, you know, a large dose of arsenic causes symptoms that can be described and seen and examined, but the pathology is non-specific, just a slight irritation of the gastric lining. Perhaps a slightly odd question, but why does arsenic kill you? What does it actually do to the body? <laughs> arsenic is a chemical that combines with what are called sulfhydryl groups, which are really reactive bits of proteins. Uh, I, I can't describe it simply any other way. I mean, proteins have all sorts of chemicals, but there are bits of them that actually do the job. And sulfhydryl groups are one of those, those bits. And they combine particularly with that part of proteins in the cells of the body and particularly in what are called the mitochondria of the body. Now, the mitochondria are the factories of the body where energy is produced, and the enzymes needed to make that work contain sulfhydryl groups, and that's really where arsenic works. It gets right into these little factories inside the cell and stops them, stops them working. Now, that then has an effect on stopping the cells working properly, which causes the diarrhoea, which causes the vomiting, which causes, over time, liver damage and kidney damage, which kill you. So it's not a direct kill you immediately poison. We know it's not. It causes effects that lead to changes that result in death. But it's that particular effect within, deep within the cell that kills. The appearance of the mucous membrane of the duodenum denoted the action of an irritant poison. The patches of vascularity in the rectum might also be considered the effects of an irritant poison. But they were not very characteristic of that. There were ulcers there. We could not form any opinion as to their duration. All these substances removed from the body were left in the charge of Dr. Penny. The ulcers might have resulted from an irritant poison, but I am not aware that they are characteristic of that. They might have been produced by any cause which would have produced inflammation. If you go and read Dr Hugh Thompson's testimony in full, we've put links to the trial papers in the episode notes and they are fascinating, you'll notice it is pretty non-committal. There are a lot of frustrating might-haves and could-bes in there. There is a lot, of course, that a post-mortem can tell you, but a lot that it can't, even for a modern-day pathologist like Dr Richard Shepherd, with more methods of analysis in their toolkit. Would there have been any way of telling that L'Angelier had been ingesting arsenic, for whatever reason, in whatever capacity, over a long period of time? Because obviously Madeleine is being charged with attempting to mm. poison him yeah. um, over several occasions. Um, can you tell that from the post-mortem? Can you tell whether it is all the most recent administration or, or ingestion or something that has been prolonged? Not reliably, no. I mean, I think, I think that nowadays we would be considering um, highly specialist tests on skin to see how much arsenic was in his skin because skin is a very slow-changing organ of the body and that might mark it. Or we'd be looking at hair to see where it was in the hair. Could we analyse his hair samples to see whether there were 
evidence of arsenic and then a gap and then arsenic and a gap and arsenic and a gap, but they didn't have those techniques then. But I think we will be thinking of doing that now to see if there were these repeat episodes. So what they had to rely on were his clinical symptoms, the repetitive clinical symptoms of abdominal pain and lassitude and feeling unwell and some of the things he said to his 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 friends, you know, I'm not going to survive. Um, you know, I, I wouldn't have thought that chocolates would have upset me. You know, all of these things point in directions, but we have no pathological way of working it out. And scientifically, at that time, I don't think they did either. Clear from my reading of it, um, it, it wasn't entirely clear that they were sure whether the method of delivery of the arsenic was from coffee or hot chocolate or how exactly, apart from being ingested. Um, is that something that in a modern um, post-mortem you would be able to determine? No. Uh, I mean, we would... It's always very difficult to know exactly how these poisons are delivered. And actually, modern pathology practice, we we seldom deal with poisons like this. Do you know what I mean? People will take overdoses of drugs and then you may find tablets, you may find tablet residue in the stomach. But, you know, these sort of poisons are now so carefully controlled that it can be difficult to establish how they were... Uh, um, delivered. But what we would do now is I'm sure we would also look at the stomach contents for food debris, for evidence, if it's in evidence of um, cocoa or chocolate, we will be looking for the vehicle that was also present in, as, in the stomach as well as the drug itself. And so I think we would work somewhat harder to understand what had gone on. However, with the purging, with all of the other effects, we may not be successful, but we would certainly spend time trying to look. And I think there would also have been a, a significant search of his his residence and his property to see, you know, were there any chocolate, was there any chocolate or a cup that still contained residues that might also contain arsenic? So the, the search around him would have been important too. In the next episode of Inside Forensic Science, our search for evidence over what happened to L'Angelier takes us to the subject of toxicology and that all-important arsenic. We'll discover just how much arsenic was found in his system. But where did it come from? And how did he end up with so much of it in his body? I think there's no doubt that uh, he died as a result of arsenic poisoning. Uh, you know, very significant arsenic poisoning. And I'm very pleased to say as a pathologist, I never have to decide whether it's murder or accident or suicide. And I, I try very carefully not to. But I am actually struck by the high quantity, the large amount of arsenic. To kill someone, you have to give them about two or 300 milli milligrams of arsenic. He's been given five and a half thousand milligrams of arsenic. This is a massive quantity. How do you get that much into someone, even in cocoa or chocolates or, or, or whatever? And, and if, if I was pushed down and I had to make a decision, I would say that points to me rather more towards suicide.
In episode four of Inside Forensic Science, the case of Madeline Smith, the actors were Erica Holland, Joe Riley, Russell Mullen, Alice Jenner, and Craig Swan. The expert pathologist was Dr. Richard Shepherd. The series story consultants are Heather Duran and Clara Morris, and it's written and presented by me, Penny Stewart. Inside Forensic Science is produced by Adventurous Audio Limited for the Leverhulme Research Centre for Forensic Science at the University of Dundee and is funded by the Leverhulme Trust. <laughs>